Chapter Twenty Three of Bunyip Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Hartley. Bunyip Land by George Manville Fenn. Chapter Twenty Three. We await our fate. I glanced from the blacks to the doctor, to see that he was intently gazing up the gorge where the rushing water came seething down, and I read in his face that he could not see the slightest hope. I looked at Jack Penny, who was deeply intent on a little blue anchor that some bush shepherd had tattooed on his thin white arm. Then I turned to Jimmy, whose quick dark eyes were busy inspecting his toes, on the right foot having hold of his war-club, which he was holding out for Jip to smell. He alone of the party did not seem to realise the fact that the end was so near. "'Can we do anything, Doctor?' I said at last in a low, awe-stricken voice. He gazed at me tenderly and held out his hand, pressed mine when I laid it in his grasp. "'No, my lad,' he said. "'Nothing.' I've tried mentally to see a way out of our peril, but I can see none. Unless the water sinks, we are lost. Joe, my lad, you must act like a man. I'll try, Doctor, I said in a choking voice. And, as I spoke, once more there seemed to rise up before me. Our quiet, peaceful home near Sydney, with its veranda and flowers, and the simply furnished pretty rooms, in one of which sat my mother waiting for tidings of her husband and son. I could not help it, but I clasped my hands together, uttering a despairing cry, for it seemed so hard to give up hope, when so young and full of health and strength. Even if it had been in the midst of the roar and turmoil of the storm, it would not have seemed so bad, or when the great flood wave came down. But now, in these calm, cool moments, when there was nothing to excite, nothing to stir the blood, and, above all, just when the sky was a dazzling blue, with a few silvery clouds floating away in the rear of the storm, while the sun shone down gloriously, it seemed too hard to bear. I gazed eagerly at the water to see it was nearly a foot higher, and then I joined the doctor in searching the rock with my eyes for a place that we might find a foothold and clamber beyond the reach of the rushing torrent. But no, there seems to be no spot where even a bird could climb, and in despair I too began to strip off some of my clothes. Are you going to try to swim? said the doctor gravely. I nodded. That's right, he said. I shall do the same. We might reach some ledge lower down. He said that word might with a slow and solemn emphasis that made me shudder, for I knew he felt that it was hopeless, but all the same he granted that it was our duty to try. The doctor now bent down over the water, and I could see that it was rising faster than ever. All at once Jimmy seemed to rouse himself, throwing up his waddy with his foot and catching it in his hand. No water go down, 
he said. Mass Joe, Mass Joe, doctor, and all get up higher. No get wet. Top along, get drown, die, and bunyip pull em down and eat em. I'm afraid escape is impossible, Jimmy, I said sadly. No, no, what I'm say, cried the black impatiently. Can't get away, I said. No get away. Wait em, wait em. Jimmy, Jimmy, see. He went to the edge of the shelf and dipped one foot in the water, then the other, working his toes about, and then, after a contemptuous look at the blacks, who were calmly awaiting their fate, he looked up at the face of the rock beyond, curving over a abutment, and reaching up as high as he could, began to climb. It did not seem to occur to him, at first, that if he were able to escape, no one else would be. And he tried twice, with a wonderful display of activity, which resulted merely in his slipping back. Then he tried elsewhere in two places, but with the same result. And after a few more trials, he came to me and stood rubbing the back of his head, as if puzzled at being so helpless and beaten at every turn. Get much, too much water, Mass Joe, he said. What I'm going to do? I shook my head sadly, and we went to the doctor who was watching the progress of the rushing river as it rose inch by inch. Cracks and points of rock that we had before noticed disappearing entirely, till the flowing earth-stained surface was but a few inches below the ledge where we're grouped, waiting for the time when we should be swept away. In spite of the knowledge that at most in an hour the ledge would be covered, I could not help watching the rushing stream as it dashed along. It was plain enough to me now why the sides of the gorge were so smooth and regular, for the action of the water must have been going on like this for many ages after every storm, and, laden as the waters were with masses of wood and stone, pebbles and sand, the scouring of the rocks must have been incessant. Then my thoughts came back to our horrible position, and I looked around in despair, but only to be ashamed out of any frantic display of grief by the stoical calmness with which all seemed to be preparing to meet their fate. Still the water rose steadily, higher and higher, inch by inch, and I could see that in a few minutes it would be over the ledge. I was noting, too, that now it was so near the end, my companions seemed adverse to speaking to me or each other, but were evidently moody and thoughtful. All but Jimmy, who seemed to be getting excited, and yet not much alarmed. I had gone to the extreme edge of the ledge, where the water nearly lapped my feet, and gazing straight up the gorge at the sunlit waters, kept backing slowly up the slope, driven away as the river rose, when the black came to me and touched my shoulder. Poor black fellow there going to die, Mass Joe. Not die yet, while Jimmy not go die 
Dulfanum Vada. Lot of time, Jimmy, not ready to die, lot of time. But how are we to get away, Jimmy? How are we to escape? Black fellow have big think, he replied. Much big think, and find em way. Great, tuppered go die. And quite well, thank you, Mas Joe. Jimmy Blackfellow won't die yet. Mas Joe have big swim. Long o Jimmy, swim much fuss, all down the water. Won't die, oh no, oh no. There was so much hope and confidence in the black's manner and his broken English that I felt my heart give a th great throb. But the sight of the calm resignation of my companions dampened me again, till Jimmy once more spoke. Mas Joe, take off Clossum. Put long gun up in corner. Come and fetch em when no water. Big swim. Many had been the times when Jimmy and I had dashed into the river and swum about by the hour together. Why not then now try to save our lives in spite of the rough, roughness of the torrent and the horrors of the great fall I knew? Two, that the fall must be at least two to three miles away and there was always the possibility of getting into some eddy and struggling out. My spirits rose then at these thoughts and I rapidly threw off part of my clothes. Placing my gun and hatchet the big knife all tied together in a niche of the rock where their weight and the shelter might save them from being washed away. As I did this I saw the doctor look up sadly but only to lower his head again till his chin rested upon his chest while Jack Penny stared and drew his knees up to his chin embracing his legs and nodding his head sagely as if he quite approved of what I was doing. The only individual who made any active demonstration was who jumped up and came to me wagging his tail and uttering a sharp bark or two. Then he ran off to the water, snuffed at it, lapped a little, and threw up his head again, barking and splashing in it a little as he ran in breast high and came back as if imitating that he was ready at any moment for a swim. The doctor looked up now, and a change seemed to have come over him, for he rose from where he had been seated and took my hand. Quite right, my lad, he said. One must never say despair. There is a ledge there higher up, where we will place the ammunition. Let's keep that dry if we can. It may not be touched by the water, even if we have to swim for our lives, the guns won't hurt, that is, if they're not washed away. It was as if he had prepared himself for the worst, and was now going to make strenuous efforts to save himself and his friends, after we'd taken such precautions as we could about our stores. Jimmy grinned and helped readily to place the various articles likely to be damaged by the by water as high as we could on ledges and blocks of stone. Though I did all this, 
it was with a feeling that we were never likely to see the things again. Still, it was like doing one's duty, and I felt that then, of all times, was the hour for that. So we worked on, with many a furtive glance at the water, which kept on encroaching till it began to lap the feet of our black companions. But they did not stir. They remained with their positions unaltered, and still the water advanced, till the highest point of the ledge was covered, and Jip began whining and paddling about, asking us, as it were, with his intelligent eyes, whether we did not mean to start. Hi, Jip, Jip, shouted Jimmy just then. Up along, boy, up along. And he patted the top of one of the stones that we had used for a breastwork. The dog leaped up directly, placing himself three feet above the flood, and stood barking loudly. Yes, we can stand up there for a while, said the doctor, and that will prolong the struggle a bit. Here, come up higher, he cried, making signs to our black companions, who after a time came unwillingly from their low position, splashing mournfully through the water, but evidently unwilling even then to disobey their white leader. They grouped themselves with us close up to the breastwork, where we stood with the water rising still higher, and then all at once I felt we must swim, for a fresh wave, the result probably of some portion of the flood that had been dammed up higher on the river course, swept right up to our lips. But for the strength of our stone breastwork, we must have been borne away. As it was, we were standing by it, some on either side, and all clinging together. We withstood the heavy wrench that the water seemed to give, and held on, the only one who lost his footing, being Jack Penny, who was dragged back by the doctor as the wave passed on. Enough to pull your arms out of the socket, whined Jack dolefully. I say, please don't do it again. Higher and higher came the water, icily cold and numbing. The wave that passed was succeeded by another, but that only reached our waists. And when it had gone by, there was the old slow rising of the flood, as before, till it was as high as our knees. Then, by degrees, it crept on and on, till I was standing with it, reaching my hips. A fearful silence now ensued, and the thought came upon me that when the final struggle was at hand, we should be so clasped together that swimming would be impossible, and we must all be drowned. And now, once more, with the water rising steadily, the old stunned helpless feeling began to creep over me, and I began to think of home in a dull, heavy manner, of the happy days when I had hardly a care, and perhaps a few regrets were mixed in with it all. But somehow I did not feel as if I repented of coming, save when I thought that my mother would have two sorrows now when she came to know of her loss. Then everything seemed to be numbed. My limbs began to feel helpless, 
and my thoughts moved sluggishly. And in a half-dreamy fashion, I stood there pressed against the rock, holding tightly by the doctor on one side, by Jimmy on the other, and in another minute I knew that the rising water would be at my lips. I remember giving a curious gasp, as if my breath was going, and in imagination I recalled my sensations when, during a bathing expedition, I went down twice before Jimmy swam to my help and held me up. The water had not touched my lips. It was only at my chest, but I fancied I felt bubbling in my nostrils and strangling me. I seemed to hear it thundering in my ears. There was the old pain at the back of my neck, and I struggled to get my hands free to beat the water like a drowning dog, but they were held tightly by my companions. How tightly, probably, they never knew. Then I remembered that my head suddenly seemed to grow clear, and I was repeating to myself the words of familiar old prayer when my eyes fell upon the surface of the water, felt as if I could not breathe. The next minute Jip was barking furiously as he stood upon his hind legs, resting his paws upon his master's shoulders, and Jimmy gave a loud shout. All the water run away just fast now. And as he spoke, it fell a couple of inches, a couple more, so swiftly indeed that the terrible pressure that held us tightly against the stones was taken off pound by pound, and before we could realise the truth, the water was at my knees. Ten minutes later, it was at my feet, and before half an hour had passed, we were standing in glorious sunshine with the rock legs drying fast, while the river, minute by minute, was going down, so that we felt sure if no storm came to renew the flood, it would be at its old level in a couple of hours. We were dripping and numb by the icy water, but in that fierce sunshine it was wonderful how soon our wrung-out garment, wrung garments dried, and warmth was rapidly restored to our limbs by rocks that soon grew heated in the torrid rays. Big Bunyip got no more water. All gone this time, said Jimmy calmly. Poor black fellows dink go die. No die, Jimmy. Lots of do find em fader all over big country. Water all gone. Jimmy Cunning, artful. Not mean and die this time. Bunyip not got enough water. Give Jimmy something eat. Ready eat half sheep and damper. Give Jimmy some eat. We all wanted something to eat, and eagerly we set to work. But soaking damper was not very sumptuous repast. Still, we feasted as eagerly as if it had been the most delicious food. And all the time, the water kept going down. End of chapter 23